Here it is. Open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 17. And do you see on your outline, I hope you'll take your listening outline out and get a pen in hand. And I hope you see the title of today's message. It's called, When Jesus Prayed for you and for me. And as we prepare to hear the word here in the worship center, let me just say the warmest of welcomes to those who are in our contemporary service, to those who are watching on TV and online. We're really glad you're here this morning too. Now, why are we looking at John 17? It's because it's been a part of our chapter a day readings over the last week. In fact, we're finishing our 21 day journey through the gospel of John today. So it's a a great day to begin because tomorrow we are beginning a six day, 16 day journey through the book of Romans in the New Testament. So if you haven't joined in, pull out your, uh, pull out your phone, text the word chapter uh, to 22828. You'll be able to join in with hundreds and hundreds of us at Ingleside and beyond as we walk through the Lord's word a chapter a day and let him transform our lives. Now, I have three questions this morning. I'd like to see a show of hands about what you believe as we begin today, okay? So here, here are the questions. Uh, the first question is, do you believe that whenever we repent and believe and are included in God's family, that we should understand God to be Father? Do you believe that to be true? Can I see your hand? God is Father? Okay. Uh, most folk in the room raise their hand. What about this? How many of you believe that the Bible teaches that God is king, that he rules, that he reigns, that he sits on the throne, and that his purposes will be accomplished? How many of you all believe God is king? Okay, all right. How many of you believe that God, that the Bible teaches that God is judge, that one day we will all stand before him, we will give an account to him, and he will hold us responsible for everything that we say or do. How many of you believe God is judge? Okay. So now what I want you to do as we turn to the scripture in just a moment is I want you to remember those three concepts about the character of God. God as father, God as king, and God as judge, I think the scripture will speak to all three. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever walked into a room where someone was praying? They're praying out loud, and um, they really weren't expecting you to walk in, and you did not know they were in there praying. But as soon as you walk in the room and you sense, ah, that person is praying, how do you typically respond? You know, that has occurred at our home more than once as I have uh, walked into the bedroom and there's my sweetheart on her knees uh, praying out loud. And as soon as I walk in the room and I may have been talking even as I came through the house and I, as I came into the room, as soon as I sensed she was praying, I bet, I bet you would have done exactly what I, I do. I, I just went silent, and I stopped, and I thought, she's praying. I need to back up. I need to give space here. This is personal. This is private. This is intimate. 
this, she's in the presence of the Lord here. Now, of course, if, if she hears me come in, she may stop and look up and say, you need me for something? You want to say something? We need to do something before she goes back to pray. But if she doesn't, guess what I do? I just sort of back up, right? I bet you would too. So when we come to John 17, we come to the longest prayer of Jesus in the Bible. But now here's the difference. Instead of saying, oh, it's a prayer, I need to back up, I need to move away, I, I don't need to intrude the very reason that it's in the Bible is so that we will draw near, so we will listen in, so that we can be taught and instructed about the character of God himself, about his relationship with his son Jesus, about who we are in Christ, about how we're to be related to the world, and so we can see how Jesus is praying for us. If you've ever stumbled into your parents' room or your grandparents' room when they were praying for you, or maybe you just stood outside the door and you listened to them pray, you might have heard your own name called. And as they prayed for you, you got a glimpse into what their desires and hopes and dreams for you are. Well, guess what? Over the next few moments, we're going to be looking at this prayer, the longest recorded in Scripture of Jesus. And God wants us to learn. And before we're done, you're going to see what his desire is for you and me. Are you ready to make a run at it? I hope you got your pen in your hand. You're going to have to write in a bunch of stuff. Now, we're going to run hard this morning. I, I, we could probably spend several weeks here, uh, but I'm going to try to get it all together because it hangs together in one prayer. So I'm going to try to get it all into one message, and, 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 and then maybe we'll come back and visit some of it in the future. So um, let me give you the outline first. Here it is. Write it in on your outline. In verses 1 through 5... We're going to see that Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying for himself, verses 1 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 19, we're going to see Jesus praying for his first followers. For those who had already trusted, believed, received his word, were following him, his first disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, we're going to see Jesus praying for us, for the church, for those who are his followers now and who are his followers because of the witness of those who have gone before us. That's the big outline. Let's take a run at it. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has already made his way into Jerusalem for the final time. In just a few days, he will be arrested and tried and crucified and then resurrected and will ascend to the Father. So we're very near those climactic events whenever he prays this prayer. And here are the things we're to learn from his prayer for himself. Write it in on your outline. Number one, we should understand that like Jesus, when we pray, we should talk to God as our Father. Do you see that in verse one? That's the way he begins his prayer. He says, Father, A little bit later in the prayer, he says, Holy Father. A little bit later in the prayer, he says, Righteous Father. Three times he says, Father. And don't you remember that when his disciples said, Teach us to pray, he said, This is how you should pray, Our, do you remember? Our Father who art in heaven. So as we pray, almost always our prayer should begin, Father. It's intimate, it's personal, but it's reverential, it respects authority. So we pray to our Father. Number two, this passage teaches us then in the first part of verse two, that the Father to whom Jesus is praying has given Jesus authority, has given him authority over all people. Do you see that? He says, Father, the hour is come. He's talking about the hour of his crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, I just want to say, this is an amazing word. It's one that's repeated in the Great Commission. When Jesus, before he says, go and make disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So do you know what this means? It means that one day, every person who has ever lived and every person who ever does live, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will acknowledge his authority. Some will acknowledge his authority because they're saved by his grace And some will acknowledge his authority as they experience God's judgment. But Jesus has all authority. What's the third thing we see? It's at the end of verse 2. Write it in. And that is the Father has given Jesus this authority for a purpose. And it is to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. Now that language, the ones that the Father has given him, I want you to note it appears in the first verses and it's going to appear repeatedly through this prayer, but it's not how we usually talk. But now what is a principle we have learned? We have learned that when we use biblical words in biblical ways to understand and apply biblical truths, our lives are transformed 
And God is greatly glorified. So now watch this. One of my goals today is for the Lord to use the scripture maybe to give us some new vocabulary. And that biblical vocabulary is going to help us see more deeply into who God is, who we are in Christ, and what our relationship with the Father is. So are you tracking with me so far? Jesus is praying to the Father. The Father's given him all authority. The reason he has authority is to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. Then in verse 3, he teaches us, write it in, number 4, that the essence of eternal life is not mainly about its duration. It's not mainly about the fact that it goes on and on and on and on forever. But the essence of eternal life is about, it is about personal knowledge of God himself. Personal relationship, intimate acquaintance with God himself. Do you see that in verse 3? He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, Jesus is praying to the Father. The Father gives him authority. The authority is so he can give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. And the heart of having eternal life is to actually know, have fellowship with, experience the presence of, be in a reconciled relationship with God himself. The passage finishes, Jesus' prayer for himself, number five, write it in, with this truth that Jesus glorified the Father by accomplishing the work the Father had given him to do. Do you see that? It's in verse four. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now think of all we've learned that Jesus has done. Jesus healed the sick. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. But all that is preparatory until Jesus does the work that he came to do ultimately, which was to bear our sins on the cross, to pay our sin debt so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to the Father and be then resurrected and exalted and sit at the right hand of the Father where he is today. And, and Jesus says, Father, I have glorified your name by, by doing the work you gave me to do. In other words, I was obedient to your plan for my life. And so I have glorified you. That's brought you praise. That's brought you honor. That has magnified your name. That has extolled you. That has ascribed to your name all the greatness that is due it. That's what to glorify means. It means to clothe with uh, splendor. And Jesus says, by obeying you, Father, I have clothed you with splendor for all the world to see. And then finally, the sixth truth in the fifth verse is that through his death, resurrection, and ascension, the Father 
restored the glory, restored the glory that Jesus had before the world was created. Now look with me again at verse 5. It is one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture that punctuates and emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look how he prays. Verse 5. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There is no one save the unique Son of God who could pray a prayer like that. Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Father, I am about to go to the cross and die a shameful death in the eyes of the world, but I know it's your plan. So as I walk through that, oh God, glorify me. Don't leave me in the grave. Raise me up. Exalt me to your right hand. Glorify me and restore the fellowship, the glory that we shared before the world actually began. Now wrap your head around that. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that before the cosmos was created, our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in loving relationship with one another, glorified one another. And when Jesus was born, he laid aside some of that glory. He emptied himself, but now going to the cross, being resurrected, ascending to the Father, he's saying, Father, restore the glory like it was before the foundation of the world. Now, if you don't want to just say, wow, I'm not communicating. Because that's a wow moment. So you see, as Jesus prayed, he's highlighting the uniqueness in his relationship with the Father. It helps us really see Jesus for who he is. There's one other practical truth that I want to highlight before we leave, and it comes out of point number five, that Jesus glorified the Father by accomplishing the work the Father had given him to do. And you and I glorify God when we do the work he's given us to do, too. So, if he's made you a husband or a wife, when you do the work of building a strong marriage, that glorifies God. If he's made you a parent and you do the work of teaching and shepherding and nurturing and guiding and praying for your children, that glorifies God. If you're a grandparent and you're building into your family for multiple generations and that's the work God has given you to do, that glorifies God. But not only the work we do in our families, the work we do in church. If you teach a class, if you lead a group, if you sing in the choir, if you play an instrument, if you welcome and greet, if you serve in the bookstore, that work glorifies God. But it's not only in our homes and in our church. Most of us are going to get up on Monday morning and go to work, are we not? So you're going to go to teach a class at school, to coach a team, to build a house, to do legal work, to be a physician, to be a nurse, to be a salesperson, to sell insurance. I don't know what you're going to do. But I do know this. 
that the Bible says when you get up on Monday morning, if you go to work and you say, oh, Lord, I believe this is the work you've given me to do, and I offer it back to you in worship today. When you do that work, whatever that work is, it brings glory to the name of the Lord. Don't you see how that just changes things? So in the morning when you're praying, you say, oh, Lord, I'm going to work today. And the people I work with are jerks. <laughs> and the man or woman I work for, I wonder about their character. And God says, listen. You're not ultimately just working with people and for people. The work you do is for my glory, so you do it with all your heart. Well, we need to run on then and see how Jesus prayed for his first disciples. Look at it. He says, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. There's that phrase again. To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, Jesus is praying for Peter, James, John, the other apostles, and other disciples who followed him. And the way he describes them, he said, I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they, those whom you have given me, know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received those words, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Do you see some parallelism going on here? Those whom the Father has given the Son are also those who have believed. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now look at that. It says those who belong to God are those whom he has given Christ, are those who have received his word, are those who have believed in him. All mine are yours, all yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world. He's seeing his departure when he dies. But they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we're one. While I was with them, I kept them. Notice all the things Jesus did for those first followers. He said, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's Judas. But that occurred even as the scripture said, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So sanctify them. It means to make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, there's an awful lot here, but I want us to tease it out in two ways. First, so that we will see who we are as a part of the people of God. This passage describes us in at least seven different ways. And we ought to own every one of those if we're in Christ. And then secondly, I want us to see how this passage describes our relationship to the world. Got your pen in hand? I'm going to run quickly. Here we go. So number seven says, God's people are those, number one, whom the Father has given to the Son. So now watch this. It's just normal to ask, well, who are those that the Father has given to the Son? Well, they are those who in eternity past, God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 and following. It says that in eternity past, God chose us. He elected us. He set his affection upon us. And now he has given us to the Son, the Lord Jesus, who came to die to save us. It emphasizes God as king. He rules, he reigns, he is sovereign, and his purposes will be accomplished. Number two, this passage describes us, look at it, as those who have received and kept God's word that Jesus has revealed to us. So in other words, he says, Father, the ones you have, gi you have given me, this is how they responded when they heard about me. And when I taught them, they received the word. They said, oh, my eyes see, my heart is moved. I want to turn from sin. I want to follow you. I receive you. That emphasizes God is judge and human responsibility because we are responsible for our response. Hey, that's a good statement, isn't it? We are responsible for our response to the gospel. So do you see? God as king, God as judge. God's people are those whom the Father has given the Son, and they're those who have received and kept God's word that Jesus revealed to them. Number three, they are those who have believed that Jesus was sent by the Father. Number four, they are those in whom Jesus is glorified. And why is Jesus glorified in them? Because they have received and kept his word and believed in him. Number five, God's people are those whom Jesus has kept, guarded, and not lost. Number six, God's people are those in whom the joy of Jesus is fulfilled. And number seven, God's people are those who are being sanctified by the truth of God's word. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Verse 17, your word is truth. Now, are you tracking with me so far? What this passage is doing is it's teaching us about God as king, he is sovereign, and God as judge, 
we are responsible. Now, depending on what your upbringing has been, churches you've been a part of before you came to Ingleside, and how faithful they were to Scripture, some of you may be saying, but now wait, 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 wait. Those things can't go together. If God is sovereign and his purposes are accomplished, how can he ever hold us accountable and responsible? And some would say, well, well now wait, if Scripture... 